0: Our second reading from God's Holy Word is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 19. Towards the end of our service, we will use it in music, but for right now, I'm going to read it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and... Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race." Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Back when it pleased God that my ministry take place in mainline congregations, I was effectively a spy behind enemy lines. I was a believing minister in ungodly churches, and uh, my my overt goal was to wake up these sleeping churches to... to bring them in contact again with the Word of God, when in many cases they hadn't heard it for years upon years. During that time, because I was a spy and my unbelieving overlords didn't realize I was uh, on the other side, uh, they would send me letters and documents and, and that sort of thing that they shared... Uh, with each other, they they would never let congregants see these kind of writings. But you know, the good old boy system was that the unbelieving liberal ministers shared them. And so I started building up a file which I called "Organized Evil." And into that file I would put the the paper from the PCA where they the PCA USA where they said, "Now we know that human beings don't really have a soul; that there's no such thing as a spiritual life." Uh, But that's all religious language, and your people think they do, so here's how you minister to them, because they don't understand they're just biology. Or uh, I would put in there letters from the denominational headquarters saying, this is how we're going to really promote the the twisted and sick moral lifestyle that we as a denomination will want to back. And so I built up this big file, and I was preaching reformation. I was preaching to my people The church needs to be redeemed from this wickedness. They need to overthrow it. And every now and then, uh, someone would come to me and say, Pastor Russ, are you sure the denomination is as bad as you're saying? And I'd say, come with me. I want to show you something. And I'd open up the file and just let them read it. And they'd go, yeah, this is as bad as you said, and maybe a little worse. You understated it. And so this file did me a huge amount of good, and... When I left that kind of ministry, I threw all that wickedness away and was really happy to watch it go, But now I kind of wish I'd kept it, just for the shock value and let you read it. But the reason why I say all this is kind of the crowning jewel in that file was a letter I received from a fellow Presbyterian minister who, once they realized I was preaching the Word of God and calling the Church of Reformation, Uh, and that the church was listening and was going to leave this wicked denomination, Uh, they were going to send a commission of people to come take the church building. They had a minister and they had about seven other people that were going to come on a Sunday morning and they were going to remove me from the pulpit and take over everything. And he was sending me a letter ahead of that. And this two-page letter... Uh, very condescendingly, wanted me to know that God was far bigger than man. God was infinite and we are finite, and because of that, because God was so much more than we are, God can't really speak to us. Just like you are above an amoeba, So God is above you, and you can't talk to an amoeba, right? You you can't get them to understand what you're saying. Well, that's where God is, according to this minister. God is so great and so mighty that God can't talk to you. He cannot make his will known to you. It's just not going to happen because he is so much above you. Well, even John Calvin in the Reformation made the comment that God has to stoop and speak baby talk to us for us to understand. Is there any truth to what this minister said? Well, the answer is no, not a bit. At least not if we take the scripture as opposed to him. He had built God so up that God was enabled to do something which meant that God was actually weak and powerless and was effectively irrelevant. But Psalm 19 comes to us from the the strum of the psalmist, and the psalmist is of the exact opposite persuasion. Can God speak to such small people? Can God make himself known well the word of God says yes. And here, the psalmist begins to show us how he principally does that. Now, I use the word principally because God can do all his holy will. There's nothing that God can't do, and at times in history, God has spoken to people in different ways than the two ways I'm going to mention. But, principally, the pattern of how God speaks to his people, the normative way, the way it's going to work almost all the time, is he's going to basically speak to us through two books. The first book is the book of nature, and verse 1 through 6 of our psalm talk about that book. And not surprisingly, when the Reformation began, uh, one of the greatest reformational confessions begins effectively with talking about these two books. After a first article that talks about the nature of God, the Belgic Confession, which is one of the most orthodox, most godly statements of the Reformation, begins to talk about how God talks to us, and this is what it says. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says, all which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. So the the Reformational Father said, God is creator, and as the creator, he speaks through the very things he's created. There's a message in creation, and it can be seen, and people do see it. God speaks to them. Verse 1 through through 6 Are The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Firmament there being, you know, the earth and things you can touch, you know, the hard stuff, and the heavens are the air and space above that, the stuff that you really can't touch. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. In these first six verses, the psalmist says God is talking through creation and these are the things God is saying. The first one is God exists. You really can't have the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork if he's not there for that to happen. So the psalmist says God has made himself known to man Man knows he's there because creation is there. We're in a a universe of causality. All the questions of why, 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 why have to go back to something that doesn't have a why. So creation shows you that God exists. It shows that he is the creator. The book of nature is all that is needed for man in his right mind to know that there is a creator of the universe. Now, the number of human beings who are in their right mind is not real high, but the book of nature does show that God is a creator. It shows that God is glorious. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, what is glory? Well, glory is kind of a catch-all word for everything that is good. That which is good and heartwarming and awe-inspiring and truly noble, well, all that's glory. And the book of nature shows us that God not only created, not only is there, but he is glorious. It shows that God is omnipresent. When you get down to verse 5 and 6, where the psalmist is talking about the sun. He's not talking about the sun per se. He's saying you look up in the sky and you've got this ball of light that gives life to the earth and seems joyful and it circles the world and there's no place where the light doesn't touch. The sun is a symbol of God, which we've been talking about, and God has has even encoded into reality The fact that he is the son of righteousness, he is the giver of life, and he is um, active in his creation, just like the sun goes around the world, so God is active. Uh, God rejoices over his creation, just like the sun seems to bring joy and happiness. Uh, You can see from the fingerprints of the creator on nature, God really likes what he made, And God is like a bridegroom. Now, the psalmist doesn't go further here than that. What does it mean that God is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, that he's getting ready to go to a marriage? Well, uh, to to really unpack that, we're going to have to go to another book. But in this book, we can see that God is all powerful, all present, the Creator. He's joyful. He rejoices over the creation. There is a huge amount of things in the book of nature any man separated from special revelation could see about God. Throughout most of human history, and I know that this will feel odd to you given the time period you're living in, but throughout most of human history, It has been considered to be mentally deficient to be an atheist, and that's anywhere in the world. Every society has had some concept of God, and they have said, if you look at creation, we can't get away from the concept there's a creator, and that he created things wisely and good, we just can't get away from that. If you try to get away from that, you are mentally deficient. Nothing has really changed except that people who are mentally deficient don't like being called that, and they've tried to take things over. But the truth is, it's pretty mentally deficient to look around the world and say there's no creator. And that's the book of nature, the first book that God communicates through. As glorious as verse 1 through 6 are, though, there are a number of things that verse 1 through 6 don't talk about, and they're kind of serious things. Uh, it, it's questions like these. Why does the world suck? Uh, I realize that's kind of a uh, you know rough way to put it, but uh, if you think about it, all of humanity and its religions acknowledge the fact the world is fairly a bad place. Now, we've been talking about how glorious it is, and that's all true, but if the world wasn't a bad place and people didn't suffer most of the time, you wouldn't have religion. I mean, let's let's face it, you wouldn't because nobody'd be driven to it. But the world is a bad place, and suffering and misery and injustice take place, and You look at creation and you go, why is that? And creation lets you hear crickets. Don't answer. Um, Why does God seem to be fairly removed from his creation? Now, in verse 1 through 6, we we have the fact he's present, but most human beings really feel kind of separated from God and they can't find him. Whether you're in China, whether you're in France, or whether you're in Ohio, most people, if they're honest, say, you know, I really kind of feel alienated from God. Uh, He's not here the way I would like him to be here. And when I pray, I don't get the sense that he's listening. Why is that? Um, How can I relate to this great bridegroom? Verse 1 through 6 pictures him as a, a man about getting ready to get married and he's filled with joy, and there's nothing more that he would like than for this to, to be brought to fruition. Uh, but I feel alienated from him, and that's not the way it ought to be if he's, he's a bridegroom. Um, for these kind of questions, you've got to have another book. And on top of this, the book of nature is a damaged book. It is not a book that is like it was when it was first written. If you go to the book of Genesis in chapter 3, you go to that famous passage where God is cursing humanity and he curses the world at the same time. In Genesis 3, verse 13 through 19, this is what we read. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now think about that. When God curses mankind, he changes the way the book of nature works. They didn't die. And now, in the book of nature, we see that you can't have life without death. Uh, If you want a philosophical understanding of that, ask me. And if you want a scientific understanding of that, ask Dr. Vandekroix. But it's an absolute truism. Life can't exist without death. And that was the way it was before this. Women are changed. The ground is changed. Life in the world is changed. The natural laws that men live under are changed. And so the book of nature is not quite exactly what it was. It is a damaged book. In West Africa, there is a small little worm, it's a parasite, that survives off eating human eyeballs. It crawls into human eyes and it eats them and leaves people blind do you think that worm worked that way before the curse? The answer is no, it couldn't be. There's all sorts of things about the book of nature that don't quite exactly testify the way they used to. And so when you have an R.C. Sproul who stands up and says, every book of God is inerrant, and that means the book of nature too, and, and by the way, he backtracked on that before his death, but he did say that. Uh, Sproul was wrong. The book of nature is not inerrant. If you're looking for the full goodness, the full grace, the full person of God, the book of nature is damaged so that you will not see the full picture of God. But there is another book. The way our forefathers put it in the Belgic Confession, continuing on in Article 2 and going into Article 3, uh, this is what they say. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of man, but that men spoke from God being moved by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Peter says. And that afterwards, God, from a special care which he has for us in our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing And he himself wrote with his own finger the two tablets of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. Now, you notice our forefathers didn't say creation is in itself holy and divine. But this second book is. It's written by God himself. We call it special revelation. It's the scriptures. And this book isn't damaged. This book is written by God himself, and in this second book, you can see all the things you really can't see in the first book. And our psalm, beginning at verse 7, and running through, I believe, verse 11, uh, begins to talk abruptly about the second book. It's talked about the book of nature, but then suddenly we're hearing about the second book that God has written. And from verse 7 through 9 the psalmist will use several words to talk about the scriptures. In English, it reads, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, in the Hebrew, the word is Torah, and the Torah is a general word for all revelation, but specifically looking at it from the point of view of being a law. God has given a law, and it's been given to men, it's in writing, and the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, right off the bat, we suddenly hit sort of a bump, because we're told in other places, now, the law doesn't save you. In fact, the scripture's real clear about that. But here it says the law converts the soul, and the soul is you, and conversion is salvation, so what gives? Well, the law doesn't save you, that's absolutely true, but think back on how the apostles present the gospel. Think about the book of Galatians, which we are very, very slowly crawling through, but we really are. Uh, Think about Romans. How does God, through the apostle, present the gospel? Well, the first thing the apostle does is he says, now look into God's law, what do you see here? And the answer seems to be, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner and I'm on my way to hell. I need something to happen so that doesn't happen. And then we hear about grace. Well, the law doesn't convert your soul, but it's part of it because you've got to know you're a sinner or you're going to be very surprised on judgment day. And I actually know some people who are going to be very surprised on judgment day. They're going to look at the Lord and say, Lord, I was a great person, didn't you see? And then God will show them, and it's going to be terrible. The law is from God. It's the second book, it's part of it. And it converts the soul because it shows you you need conversion. Uh, It goes on uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the Hebrew word here is edut, and it means a precept, a testimony. It can mean a warning sign. And what's really interesting about the word is that more often than not, it's applied to all the symbolism that's in the tabernacle. If you go into the tabernacle of God and you see the showbread, that's a testimony from God that God will give you this day your daily bread. If you see the menorah lampstand, it's a testimony that God is light and life and he will bless you with life and light and that sort of thing. Well, this word gets used there almost all the time. It's God's testimony about his covenant. You can search nature high and low, and you'll never find the covenant of God. But he has revealed it in his written word. He has testified to his covenant, and there you'll find it. Moving on into verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart and The word here is Mishwa, which refers to a king's command, or to the written body of a king's command. Here, the second book, the, the scripture, is pictured as coming from the very hand of the king, telling you what things are going to be like in his kingdom. Going on, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous, and uh, this word is Mana, and in the Hebrew, it kind of sounds like the other word they 're paired together, but mana literally means an objective tallying up it 's If you go to your books and you balance your books and you get everything just right well in hebrew you 've manad, and it might refer to the fact that god 's law is in Ten Commandments, but more than that, it seems to testify to god 's telling you. What things are really real. When I teach uh, introduction to critical thinking at the college level, one of the things the textbook will tell my students is we have to have faith in human reasoning. And it will put it that way. It's not my words, it's the textbooks. We must have faith in human reasoning. Now think about that for a second. The whole reason the college wants to teach them critical thinking, so to speak, is they want to move them away from faith. They, they want them to, to not be faithful. They want them to use their mind. But the textbook has to admit there is no reason for us to objectively believe what the human brain thinks is reality. It could be totally different. From a, from a totally detached point of view, You could be thinking you're sitting in New Hope Reformed Church listening to a sermon, and you could be a madwoman. You could be a lunatic. And you could be sitting in a padded cell, and none of this is happening. And how will you prove that by your mind? Well, you won't, because you could be mad. And the very fact that you think you're sane is just testimony to the fact you're a lunatic. Scripture says there is a ground of being God exists outside of reality. He speaks reality into existence, and that's very important. When God speaks, things happen. And God gives meaning to reality. So the Christian says, Why do I think I'm not a butterfly dreaming about being a man, which I can't prove with logic? Well, I believe it because God has said it. He has spoken about butterflies, and I'm not one. He's spoken about mankind, and I am part of that, and there is a ground of being, God tells me what really is, I can be sure that A equals A, which nobody else can be sure about. This is the second book, God's word establishes what is what. Moving on into the next verse, in verse 9 we read, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever and the word fear is yare and it speaks to how you are supposed to respond when the king has written you what's going to happen the king in the covenant writes this is how we're going to live and you in the covenant go yep we're going to do that because he's the king it's a reference to the written word and how we are to respond to it And then in verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. And this word is mizpat. And judgment actually does a real good job describing what it means. It pictures God seated upon a throne and he's holding court. And all these things that are happening on the earth that men think never are going to come into judgment, they all are. God is going to sit as judge, and he is going to rule upon everything that's ever happened. And in this life, some of us are going to see his judgments actually happen, but all of us are going to see God's every judgment happen. There's not a thing that's not going to come under God's judgment. And where do we find God's judgments about everything that's happening? It's not in nature. It's in the written word. It's in the second book. And so the psalmist takes us to the second book and shows us that this second book answers all the questions we had looking in the first book. Why is the world such an inherently bad place? Well, the Buddhist can't really answer that. The Sikh has a false answer to that. But the scriptures tell you why the world is a bad place. God cursed it. And when you understand that, you go, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. That explains why everything's frustration. Why do I feel alienated from God? Well, the second book tells you God used to walk with you in the cool of the garden. He was your intimate best friend. But sin has separated you from the king who sits in judgment You really only need the king to sit in judgment if bad things have happened. Well, they have. There have been things happened that separate you from God. Um, How can God be the bridegroom and me be so separate from him? Well, the second book, the book of the scripture tells you. And it points to the word of God just in a third kind of way. Um... Has it ever struck you as, as interesting that when, when the New Testament gives a title to the Messiah that's not Messiah, the, the title that is most often given to him is the Word. Listen to the first epistle of, of John, verse 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father, And his son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you that our joy may be full. I feel alienated from God, but he's a bridegroom and he's happy. Well, um, how do I understand that? Well, the second book points you to the third book, and the third book is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Everything about the first book exists because God is in covenant with his son. The second book ultimately points everything to the Son of God because he's in covenant with the Father. And the third book is every promise that the two books talk about in living form. So all these questions I have, the second book answers. How can I be in fellowship with God, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the answer to being separated. He's the answer to you feeling like life is absolutely fruitless, you might even say it's vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Well, Jesus Christ takes you past that. And the second book does that. And going on in our psalm, the, the psalmist begins to talk about the effects of the second book. And in verse uh, 10 through 11, we read this. More to be desired are they, that is the scriptures of the second book, more to be desired are they than gold, yes, than more much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, moreover by them your servant is warned. That suggests that if you just kind of blindly go through life, uh, you're walking through a minefield and someone really ought to warn you where the mines are. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the psalmist has celebrated the God of creation in creation, but he points to to the written word, and in these verses he tells us that the scripture is valuable. Would Would you like to own a gigantic pile of gold? Well, I think all of us would. Yeah, that'd be nice. But the psalmist says, More valuable than that is the written word. The written word is joy-producing. Honey is delicious, and we would love to eat sweet things, but far greater than any joy the world has is the fact that God has given you the scriptures. And these scriptures warn you about this short life. The world is rotten the world is for you a bad place, uh, you need warned how to get out of that. Well, the scriptures do that. If you're looking for how to have meaning in the world, don't go look on the bestseller list of the New York Times. Don't look anywhere but the written word of God, and there you will find your warning. And what happens if you receive this warning? Well, that is the last couple of verses. Who can understand his errors? Uh, Up till this point, the psalm has not really talked about human sinfulness, but now it does. And the reason it does is because God's shown it to us. I didn't know I was a coveter until the law said, thou shalt not covet, and now I realize I am. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. So now, I'm not only a sinner, but I know that I need to seek God's grace, and I turn to God, and I say, Lord, um, there's a lot of error in my life, and I see some of it, and you see all of it, some of it looks like it's fine to me, but Lord, I've come to realize I'm a sinner before you, the word of God has said so, cleanse me from my secret faults. Also, you know, Lord, there are these presumptuous sins I have, and now I've come to realize them. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I would like to tell you that in my moral life, uh, I fight sin all the time and I struggle with it and, and I never want to sin. That'd be an absolute bold-faced lie. The truth is, I'm really very good at sinning and there's a number of times when I sin and I know I'm sinning. and I don't care. My, my, my flesh just even kind of revels in it well when the word of god is brought to bear on my life i then see how utterly shameful how utterly despicable that is and i'm broken down and that's where the psalmist is he's looked into nature and seen that god exists he's looked into the the written word of god and seen the holy nature of god the perfection of god and now he is seeking god's sanctification Keep me back from these presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. I shall be innocent of great transgression. I want to be the kind of person who can live in a world that doesn't suck. I want to be your servant. I want to embrace righteousness. Uh, The reason the world has been cursed is because of me. Lord, now having looked into your word, don't let me be such a man. And then as the psalm ends, we've been singing about God talking to us, and his word directs us to his goodness and mercy. Now in the end, we look at our own words and we say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God has spoken to me, now I want to be very careful how I speak, because I have been in the presence of holiness. In in Bible study this morning, in Catechism, we looked at the fact that in prayer, we don't start off humble. We come into God's presence, but we're very much like the man in the Gospels who says, oh Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We come into his presence without a proper humility, but being in his presence, we get it quick because the presence of God will humble you. And the psalmist has come to that point. He wants to walk faithfully before God, and he sees God as his strength. What does it mean that God is your strength? Well, it means you don't have any. It means that if you want to walk rightly before his face, if you want to live a holy life, you're not going to find any strength in you to do that. You're not going to have some magical strength that you draw upon and you say, you know, I think I'm going to choose goodness and righteousness. I'm just going to do that. Uh, The psalmist has looked into God's books and he realizes I don't have any strength. God has to give that to me. And not only that, God has to be my redeemer on Easter we looked at Psalm 49 and we saw the psalmist say you know I'm going to die even wise men die wicked and evil men die too but we all die and we all get grabbed by Sheol we all get grabbed by death but not of any strength of mine. God is going to redeem me from the hand of Sheol he is going to raise me up the resurrection of the dead is the testimony that God is going to take our worthless estate of death and he is going to pull us out of that and we are going to be redeemed. And more than that, he's not just going to redeem us bodily, he is going to redeem us totally. In the third book of God, in Jesus Christ the Word, I am going to have redemption so that my inner life is like my outer life, I'm going to be brought back from the dead in both ways. And the psalmist, having looked into the books of God, having looked into creation, but then looked into the written word, which is much clearer and not damaged, he sees that he needs redemption. And where is redemption but in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can God speak to us? God is so powerful, so holy, so above us, so able to do everything. Yes, God can speak to us. Has God spoken to man? Yes, in the first book, everybody has read that. And there are certain things you can know about God. But God has spoken directly in his written word, testifying to Christ the word, and he makes himself known to us. Can you look at somebody and say, Do you really think God has spoken to you? And you can say, Absolutely. I am not left in error. I am not left in darkness. God has spoken. He may have gotten down on his knees and talked baby talk to me, but God is all powerful and God can speak. And he has. Thanks be to God.